The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So what should you see when you look at a genuine Christian? How would you answer that question? What, what do you want to see? Um, what would stand out about their exper- experience or how they live? It's a very important question. Do you think it's an important question? Uh, number one, think of the perspective of those who aren't Christians. And if that's you today, we're so glad you're here. Uh, but that should be an important question for us as Christians. What do you want those who aren't Christians to see when they look at your life, when they look at a Christian? And you know, this is a big deal in our day, right? If you've ever tried to invite somebody to church, I bet you at least somebody somewhere once said, I'm never going to church. Why? It's full of hypocrites. And you're like, hey, how'd you know? You've never been to our church before. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's full of hypocrites. The people there, they're self-righteous. They think they have it all together. They think they're better than everybody else. And they don't practice what they preach. And folks, that is a real thing in our world today. Uh, For better or worse, whether it's true or not, hey, sometimes it is. When those who aren't Christians think about what it what a, a Christian looks like, that's what they see. Something like a self-righteous hypocrite. So we'd want to deal with that, right? That's no good. Uh, but this is an important question, not just because of the vantage point of somebody who's not a Christian. It's a very important question for those who are Christians. Again, the question, what should you see when you look at a genuine Christian? It's important to those who are Christians. Number one, it's a test. It's a test. Have you ever wondered, am I a real Christian? You know, it's the Pinocchio test. What does Pinocchio want to be? I just want to be a real boy, you know? Am I a real Christian? Um, How would you know? How could you test yourself to say, yeah, I've got that? Um, So it's good for the test. Also, uh, it's good for the goal to know what you should see when you look at the life of a real Christian. You should say, okay, this is is something I can taste, something I can understand, and I'm going to go after this. This is my target. I want this to be true of me. So we're getting into 1 Peter today, back into our study through 1 Peter. We're calling it Life as Exiles. And you can see why in verse 11, right? What does he say? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What what does Peter call Christians? Exiles. Exiles. What does that mean? It means we live where we don't belong. It means uh, we're, not from, we're not from here anymore. This is not my ultimate home. Uh, and that has some huge implications for how we see life. Number one, uh, you're never gonna fully belong here, right? It's not, this, this world, this life is not gonna fully satisfy you. You're, you're made for somewhere else. It also means you're gonna be misunderstood. That's in our text today. You know, if you, go, if you go to another country, you have, a, you have a different culture. We don't always understand each other. If you're in exile here in this life because you belong somewhere else, this world's not always going to get what we're about as Christians. Uh, we don't belong. We're going to be misunderstood. Number three, we're going to have to work to maintain our identity. We're going to have to work to maintain our identity. When you're a minority in a majority culture, that majority culture is going to want to swallow you whole. So you become just like them, you think just like them, you feel just like them, you live just like them. And as Christians, as exiles, part of our work here is to remain uh, 
firm, stable, and that identity that we have in Christ. Christians are exiles. We've seen that in Peter, and at this point in the letter, Peter begins to focus on how Christians should relate to an outside world. So he talks about your conduct among the Gentiles. Here's what's so interesting about that. Uh, What's Gentile mean, by the way, anybody? Not Jew, right? The funny thing is, is Peter's writing to non-Jews. They live in Asia. So these are Gentiles. But now Peter's kind of saying, well, you're not really Gentiles anymore. Why is he saying that non-Jews are no longer non-Jews? Well, it's this exile idea. Really, I mean, if you look back at 2, 9, and 10, you're a... You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're you're children of God now. That's that's bigger than being an American. That's bigger than being any other thing that fits in with this world. You have this new identity as a child of God in Christ. You're in exile, and so now um, you're different. And we want to think about, since you're different as God's people, we want to think about how you relate and respond to those who aren't Christians and what you look like in this world. So that's what Peter is after. And just in these two verses, uh, 11 to 12, we've got some powerful things about what we should see in a, in, a, in a genuine Christian right here. So I think there's three things I wanna point out for us. Um, number one, in every Christian, there should be a fight. We're gonna see the fight. Uh, number two, in every Christian, there should be a glow. A glow. And number three, in every Christian, there should be a rest. The fight, the glow, the rest. All right, so as we get here, you know, what should you do with this as we go through this passage? Um, remember, this is a test. Remember, this is a goal. Uh, remember, this is what we want others to see. So I just wanna ask you as we work through this stuff, ask yourself to say, do, is this in me? Um, am, I, am I a real a real boy, the Pinocchio test. Um, how could I pursue this more? And then also, do others see it in me? So just keep that on your mind as we work through these. So number one, the fight. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage, what's that next word? War. War. Every Christian is in a war. What do you know about wars? They're ugly. Uh, They're hard. There's struggle. There's backs and forth. There's ups and downs. It's difficult. There's successes. There's failures. There's fear. There's courage. But one thing about war, it's not easy. Another thing about war, it's not comfortable. And every Christian is in a war. It's a serious war. It's a war against your, what? What did you see? It's a war against your soul. Do you believe this? Your soul, that's your core self. It's your heart. It's, it's who you are. Your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your future. It's who you are. And you're in a war for who you are. And wars are difficult. And this internal war is normal for the Christian life. Uh, Did you know that? How might it change your expectations about your Christian life if you knew that an an internal war was normal? 
You know, you thought when you became a Christian, you would have, uh, you'd be overflowing with peace and joy and freedom. Um, there will be peace and joy as you fight the war. There'll also be doubt and struggle and pain and hurt and lostness. You're in a war. Sometimes we think, I thought it'd be easier when I, when I became a Christian. In some ways, life gets harder when you become a Christian. You've entered a war for your soul. Um, that should be part of our expectations here, right? So what's the war against? What's the fight against? Uh, is it against others? In this context, is the war against the outside world? No. Is it against your circumstances, necessarily? No. In, in this context, is it against all the problems of the world? No. Where's the war? It's a war against your own desires. And this is the war of all wars, and all the other wars come from this war, by the way. It's a war for your desires. Look at what Peter says. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from the passions. Uh, is, is God anti-passion? When you read God, is he like a light side of the force Jedi, you know? I don't feel anger or hate or joy. Is he passionless? Always n not at all. You won't meet anybody more passionate than the God of the Bible. His passion scares us, right? When he loves you, man, he loves. And when he has wrath, he has wrath. He's all in all the time. So is this text telling you to kind of just find this uh, Eastern religion kind of, I don't care about anything, no passion for me? Not at all. It's a certain kind of passion. Um, God wants us to be passionate. He wants us to love the right things in the right ways. This word means something like over-passions or over-desires. It's basically taking a good thing and wanting it far too much. Uh, it's another way to talk about idolatry, where you, where you have this good thing and you just need it and you want it and it kind of becomes a little God to you and you, you're thinking about it and you're serving it and you're seeking it and you're going after it. I really, really want it. And uh, you're, you're, just, you're giving yourself over to this and it's owning you. What else can we learn about these passions? What did, he, what did he call them? Passions of the flesh. Again, is God against the body? Is, he against, is, he, is this what he's talking about, your, your flesh? No, God, God made the body. He loves the body. The body's good. What, what does this word flesh mean? It's a selfish kind of turned in inclination. It's, it's all about you and how you need this kind of over-desire thing that you've got to have. Uh, what's an illustration you could use? Um, somebody insults you. Somebody insults you. That ever happened before? Okay. Somebody insults you. What does a passion of a flesh look like here? Well, if it's a, if it's a passion, you've got, hey, wait, I need to be respected. I need to be appreciated. I need to be talked well to, I need to not be treated like this. So this is this passion. Hey, listen, it's a good thing to not want to be insulted, okay? Um, but this becomes an over-desire. If you don't respect me, passions of the flesh, hey, 
Now I've got to fight for myself here. I've got to get back at you. I've got to come around and uh, insult you as well, or I've got to share what you did with my friends, but I've got to, I've got to fight here. Uh, this, is a, this is a passion of the flesh, this over-desire to, um, to save yourself, to vindicate yourself, to promote yourself, and it's, it's fleshly, it's inward-centered, and, and where's God in that picture? Somebody insults you, you insult back. Where did God go? <laughs> In your mind, all of a sudden, you're like a functional atheist in that room. He's not even there. He's not watching. He doesn't help me. And Peter's saying, hey, bring it back. Bring it back. Abstain from these passions of the flesh, these over-desires that are so self-centered, because they're trying to kill you. See, when you do this, you think you're preserving yourself. You're, you're, you're fighting for yourself, you're saving yourself, you're promoting yourself. You think you're helping yourself with these over-desires that are so self-centered. And in reality, what are these desires doing to you? They're waging war against your soul. So you've gotta, he says, abstain, stay away, fight it off, recognize it, move back. Wow. It's so interesting, you know, if you look back up in verse, verses nine to 10, Peter's talking about us as Christians. We've received such mercy, and now we just wanna proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So part of our desire right there, right, as a Christian is glory of God. I love God, I love his glory. It's part of our desire. And then in the next verse, he's like, oh, and fight those other desires where you want the exact opposite. Part of you wants God's glory. And part of you is like, heck with God's glory, my turn for glory. <laughs> and it's in there. And that's normal. It's not good. It's normal. You're going to have these desires. What do you need to do? You got to fight. You got to fight. Every Christian's in a fight. So if this is true, you think this is true? I, I'm sure it's true, looking at my own ugly heart. I know this is true. If this is true, how do you apply this? What do you do? Number one, wake up, right? Worst thing in a battle, a soldier in a battle, send him to Fallujah, and he thinks it's a time of peace? Walking down the street, hey! He doesn't realize everybody wants to kill him. The first part of engaging in a battle is to realize, I'm, a, I'm in a battle. You're in a battle. It's a battle for your desires. And all those other battles that seem so big in your life, they seem so big in my life too, they actually aren't the real big battles. Where's the most important battle you fight? It's right here. So wake up, know you're in a battle. Number two, you have to know your heart a little bit. As Christians, we need to be somewhat introspective. We need to know ourselves because Peter is saying you need to recognize in yourself certain kinds of desires that you have. And you need to, you need to understand them. Are, are these good? Is this an over? Is, how, am I, how is this desire playing out in my life? You need to know what your kind of functional um, idol problem is. You go to an AA meeting, what do they say? Hi, my name's Matt. I'm a recovering Alcoholic. You come to church, you know what we say? Hi, my name's Matt. I'm a recovering idolater. I'm still, I'm waging the war in my soul. 
against these selfish over desires. So you have to know your heart and you gotta fight back. That's what it means for yourself. What does it mean for others? There's a band I used to really like. Some of you have heard of it, Humdrum Rebellion. All two of you, three of you say amen, okay? There's three people, yeah, okay. And one line in one of the songs was, be kind for everyone around you is fighting a great battle. See, we look at Christians and we expect, oh, they're supposed to have it all together and and they're supposed to, you know, when you see a Christian struggling, you see hypocrisy, remember something. Guess what everybody's in? We're in a war. You're in a war. And wars are hard. I'm in a war, it's hard. I've got crooked desires, I'm fighting. I don't always win. Do you always win? I'm I'm gonna win the war, because Jesus won the war. Sometimes I lose a battle. And so when you know this about others, what what should it stir up in us? Compassion and help. You know, we we sometimes say uh, Christians Christians are one of the only army who shoot shoot their own wounded. Oh, you didn't fight the battle hard enough. Get out of here. We fall off on that side. Or the other side is, hey, there's no battle. We're all perfect. We don't have sin to fight. Uh, no. Okay? We're in a battle and we need one another's help. So what should you see? What, what should you see when you see a genuine Christian? What should you see in yourself? A fight. Fighting these evil desires. Um... Do you see it? Are you fighting? What do you need to fight? That's number one. First thing we need to see is a fight. And the world needs to see that fight in us, which means sometimes we need to say to them when we can, I'm sorry. I gave in to my, I don't know if you want to use these words, I gave in to the passions of my flesh. Don't use those words. Come up with different words that explain it. You know what? Um, I wanted something too much. I'm very self-centered. Uh, I didn't put my God who loves me first. I'm sorry. That's the first thing, the fight. The second thing, the glow. The glow. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Again, Peter is writing to mostly Gentiles who are Christians. And so he's talking about their regular world and all the people in it who aren't Christians. And so he says, hey, you who are Christians, Keep your conduct among those who aren't Christians at a certain level. Keep it honorable. First thing to notice, number one, people are watching you. People are watching you. Do they know you're a Christian? What do they see? They're watching you. The second thing to see, they are not always going to understand you. Look at the phrase in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that, what's that next word? So that when they speak against you as evildoers. What's the world gonna do sometimes towards Christians? They're going to speak against you as evildoers. Now, let's back up and confess. Sometimes we deserve that. Okay, let's not pull out the victim card. Oh, Christians, we're all, no. Sometimes we deserve this, okay? We lose our battle, we don't do good. If, if, if that's true, repent. 
But that's not really what Peter's thinking of right here. He's not thinking of when Christians are jerks and the world speaks evil against them. He's thinking about when you're living a faithful Christian life and the world still speaks evil against you. And the word he uses for that is when. When. So just plug this in. You could be the nicest possible person. You could be trying as hard as you possibly could to live the Christian life. And someone will still speak evil about your faith. They'll speak evil about your faith. It's a win. You know that in the first century, uh, Christians were called superstitious cannibals? Superstitious cannibals. And they were called incestuous. Incestuous, superstitious cam- uh, cannibals. Not camels. Cannibals. Um, why? Why? As a general rule, that wasn't anywhere close to the truth. But people took some of their ideas and things they thought they knew about Christians and slandered them. And it's in a bunch of ancient documents. Uh, Cannibals, well, what do we do once a month here at our church? We eat the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Ew. Hey, wait, that's not what we're talking about. I know, but they don't know that. Or they call each other brothers and sister and they greet each other and they greet each other with a kiss of peace. They were called incestuous. It was slanderous. But it was normal from day one that Christians, even when they're doing their best, would be slandered and misunderstood. Think about how non-Christians might see us with some sympathy, some compassion, right? We believe. Um, we know the only way to God. How does that sound to them? Gosh, you're so pompous. Your way is the only way? It sounds, that, it sounds like that, doesn't it? Now you'd want to be like, well, wait, let me explain something. I know, but not yet. Or they feel like we are incredibly intolerant with our moral views. You said, What? about sexuality, about, about this, oh my word, and you're saying you're, that's the only way. Gosh, you're intolerant. Or they see us a lot of times as you worship your politics. Your politics and your religion, you just put those right together and so you think God's on your political side. Or they say you're unscientific, you're out of touch. That's what a lot of modern culture thinks about Christianity. Is it always true? I mean, I know you, you know me a little bit. Would that be true for each one of us that we're pompous in saying Jesus is the only way to God or that we're um, intolerant towards people who are different than us? I don't, that's... That's, that's not the way you live, generally. I don't think that's the way I live. And, and we, for each of these issues, we'd say, hey, wait, 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 I, want, I, I, want, I have some things to explain. Or That's, that's not how it works. I know, but just, just from what they see, that's what they see. And that's normal for Christians to not be understood by the greater culture. What should you do, Peter says. This is exactly what Peter is talking about. What should you do? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, what's that next word? Honorable. Hey, watch how you live. 
Watch how you live. Emphasize how you live. They're watching you. They think your views are crazy. They're also watching how you live. Keep your conduct honorable. That word means beautiful or useful or commendable or admirable. They should be thinking as they look at us, they're nutcrackers on what they believe, waiting for their savior on a white horse to fly down and save them. But man, look at how they live. I don't get what they believe about this, but I can't argue. Kindest person in the office. I think they're crazy in what they say about this, but when my life went to heck, they were the ones who cared. Keep your conduct beautiful. And in context, it's beautiful to them where they can't argue with it. Peter says, uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see, what are they seeing? Your good deeds. You glow. You glow with good deeds. This is the story of the early church. I want to quote to you from a um, second century writing. So that's old, right? Second century writing, it's called the Epistle to Diognetus. This is what it says. Talking about Christians. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. <laughs> and it sounds like the author is like blown away by this. These people are weird. It's like they live here, but they don't. They have kids, but even if they have like another kid, they don't, you know what it means to expose your offspring? Uh, in, in second century, first century, a Roman father, a uh, wife has a child, he could be like, nah, I don't want it, and you'd go leave it on the hill. He'd let it die. It was uh, early days abortion. You just, you just leave it there, expose your child. I don't want one. The Roman father had that right. So this, this guy writing about Christians is like, they never do this. They always love their kids. Weird. And they share, but they don't share. Did you hear the surprise? <laughs> Evidently, he's ready for someone to be ready to share his wife, but not his food. <laughs> First century Greek culture. Oh, sure, you can have any. Yeah. Have my wife, but you're not getting my money. And Christians are like, oh, no, you can have my money. You're not getting my wife. Do you see? They're different. Their views stand out. Their behavior stands out. It's good deeds. Peter says, let your good deeds glow, glow, good works. Does the world around you see your good works? And does it stand out enough to stand out? Where you have a line you won't cross and yet you're so kind. Um, Paul writes a lot about good deeds. I wanna quote from Titus. Uh, in, the, in Paul's letter to Titus, it's all about, hey, Titus, teach your church to do good deeds. And this is, what, uh, this is one place where he describes what good deeds look like. Look at Titus 3, 1 to 2. This is what Christians should look like. This is how we should glow. 
Remind them to be what? Submissive to rulers and authorities. So, so we're not out there causing a bunch of trouble. We are ready to support the leadership that's there in as far as we can. Submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. I mean, good work's kind of a junk drawer. If you see something good you can do for somebody, it's a good work. Look at verse two. Uh-oh. To speak evil of... Facebook would crash if we obeyed this. <laughs> Speak evil of who? Oh, come on. Certainly someone. What about the politician you can't stand? You can speak evil of him, can't you? Would, true, or, true or false? If you in your life with your friends at work never spoke evil about anyone, you would glow. How much of casual conversation is speaking evil about someone? You would glow. I've never heard them say anything mean about anyone. They're blowing me away. Speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. You know you can be really right and really wrong. You can be so right and so wrong. It's about how you're right. You could be right and quarrel about it and all of a sudden you're wrong. You've gotta be right and handle your rightness in the right way. Look at what he says, avoid quarreling to be what? Gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Wow, we would glow. I was trying to uh, think of a way to describe good deeds, and I think, I think it'd be helpful to see that they have kind of three aspects. Number one, there's integrity. Integrity to good deeds. So this is like your honesty, your character. At work, when you're doing good deeds, uh, there is a line you won't cross. When it comes to uh, lying or deceiving or extorting, you're like, I, I can't do that. You know, you think of Daniel as an example. He was a great servant to Nebuchadnezzar, to Cyrus, but he had a line, and when they were like, hey, you need to go over that line, he was like, I love you, you know I do good work for you, but I can't cross it. That's part of your good deeds, that's how you grow, it's, or how you glow, it's your integrity. So that's your, your character. There's also a, gen, a kindness to good deeds. A kindness, a gentleness, a compassion, a concern for others so that there's no clickishness. You're not on the gossip train. You're not quarreling or you're not reviling when they revile you. Look what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, what? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when slash if we are reviled, you don't need to fight back by reviling. Your, your father in heaven has this. He will judge justly. Believe me, he will bring the rain way heavier than you would ever bring it when the time is right. You never revile. Follow the example of Christ. 
So there's integrity, there's a kindness in how we relate, and then there's a generosity to good deeds. You're willing to give, you're willing to serve, you're willing to meet somebody's needs. What should everybody see in every Christian? Number one, the fight. We're not perfect. We don't have it all together. That's never been the description. We're all in the midst of a fight. We mess this up. Not all our deeds are good, but we're fighting. Number two, what should, you, should, what should we see in every Christian? A glow. There's good deeds. We're, we're, we're different in our integrity, our kindness, our generosity. And if people looked, they'd see a glow. They might be like, they believe crazy stuff, but I can't argue. I can't argue with how they live. Third thing everybody should see, the rest. Rest. Look at, um, what's the first word in verse 11? Beloved. That's a funny word for most of us. I haven't used it this week at all. Anybody out there? Any dads, you came home from work and you were like, hello, beloved. You could have done that, I suppose. You meet with your friend for coffee and you're like, she gets there and you're like, hello, beloved. You could say that, but if you say it, people might go, what? What does it mean? It means you who are loved. It's an amazing title. It means I don't have a better title for you than, wow, you're loved. By the way, this, this title is passive. It doesn't mean you who are so good at loving. It, it's not a title about what you're doing. It's a title about what somebody else has done and is doing. You, you who are so loved. By whom? Come on, you know. You're loved by God. You're so Loved, that's what really marks you. That's what really sets you apart. You're so deeply loved. Once you were not a people, it says in verse 10, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, now you've received mercy. You're loved, you're loved by Jesus. He came for you, he died for you, he ransomed you, it says in chapter one, with his blood, and you belong to him. And this is what Peter builds this little house on, on these two verses. Yeah, I want you to fight. Why? Because you're loved. And yeah, you need to glow. Why? Because you're loved. So before you fight, in fact, what strengthens you for the fight is the what? The rest. I'm loved. Listen, you're not, you're not loved because you always fight those fleshly desires good enough. Anybody always fight good enough? Do you fight so that you'll be loved? No. You fight, why? Because you're loved. Jesus loves me so much. I wanna live for his glory. I wanna fight these nasty desires that are selfish and about me. I fight because I'm loved. And you glow. Why do you glow? You wanna do good deeds so hopefully one day God will love you? That would never work. What's the power to glow? You're loved. You rest in the gospel. You rest in him. The strength for the fight, the power of the glow is the rest in the Savior. That's the power. He loves you already. 
He's loved you first. You're right with him. You guys, look at what a difference this can make. If you have rest in Christ, and that gives you the strength for the fight and the power for the glow, did you see what Peter said about these little good deeds you're gonna do? Look back in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. What does this mean? Well, first, to glorify God here, um, I think it's to praise. In context, if you look back up at verse 10, what happened to us in verse 10? We were not a people, but now we're God's people. We'd not received mercy, but now we've received mercy. We've been loved, even though we don't deserve it. We've been loved. And, be, and because we've been loved like that, how do we want to live in verse 9? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So because you've received mercy, what do you want to do? I want to glorify God. That's what's happening in context. And so I think, commentators disagree with this a little bit. You can make your own choice. Um, but I think that what Peter is saying here is, hey, they're going to see your good deeds these Gentiles who aren't Christians, and, and these good deeds are going to influence them, and they're gonna move them towards conversion. They're gonna move them towards conversion. So he says, on the day of visitation, a couple of ideas on what this could mean. It could mean the return of Jesus Christ. And when we stand before him on that day, somebody will say, hey man, I was... I was totally not interested in Christ, and then I saw that person and how they lived, and it just was echoing to me, and it made me reconsider things, and now I trust Christ, and I just want to praise God for these good deeds that person did, because it was part of me meeting Jesus. So it either happens when Jesus comes back, or the other possibility is it, it's happening now before he comes back. The day of visitation is, uh, it's kind of hitting them now, and they're glorifying God, and it was your good deeds that were a part of that influence. But that's a big deal. That's a big deal. A huge part of our evangelism has to be what? Our glow. Our glow that comes from what? Our rest. And that rest, that enables us for the fight so that we can glow, so that other people can meet Jesus and glorify God. Isn't that awesome? So what do you think? Um, test for yourself. Are you real? What should you aim for? Number one, start with this. Aim to rest. Are you resting in the gospel? Do you find yourself there? Do you know Christ and his promises? Do you know you're loved in him? Number two, put up a, put up a fight. Identify those self-centered, idolatrous desires. Abstain from them, fight them. Apply the gospel down in to how you think and what you want and what you love. Number three, put on a glow. Put on a glow. What do people see? 
Are you full of good works? Is your conduct honorable out there? Are you full of integrity, kindness, service and generosity? Does it stand out? You know, I was imagining one of us saying to maybe a non-Christian friend, hey, I know you know I'm a Christian and you probably think some of my beliefs are weird, but I was just wondering, do you feel like my life stands out at all? Can you imagine asking that vulnerable question? What might they say? I didn't know you were a Christian. Weep. Weep. Or they might say, oh, you're pretty nice. Okay, I mean, it's not like they're all studying us and you know, giving grades. But if you, if you have this in mind, hey, when the next conversation in the office starts, Look, you gotta glow. One thing about glowing is there's no hiding. There's no hiding. Again, it's not being out there and that we're quarreling and yelling and arguing. No. We're glowing with integrity, kindness, service. But we're glowing. We're standing out. Because Jesus is in us. Um, and of course, as we do that, hopefully we'll get to this place. Look at 1 Peter three fourteen. Ready to talk about it as we glow. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to do what? Make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's the sweet spot is when you get to explain the glow and tell people about Jesus. So three things. A Christian, what? Tell me. Fights. Number two, a Christian glows. Number three, a Christian rests. May that be true of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the love that you have for us in Christ, and we pray, Lord, that um, you'd help us live more and more as genuine examples of what it means to be a Christian. We pray, God, that you give us a true rest in the gospel. We pray, God, that you would give us a fight against our sinful desires, and we pray, God, that you would help us to stand out uh, with kindness and love in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.